Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Have you ever dreamed of starting your own business in the outdoor industry or ever just wondered what it takes and how you'd even go about doing that? Or maybe you know somebody who has or is thinking about starting a company. Well, today we are talking about the state of startups in the outdoor industry with Moose Jaw CEO Owen Comerford. And as the CEO of an outdoor retail company, as well as his work with the Moose Jaw Outdoor Accelerator, where Owen works closely with new companies and founders, well, Owen is extremely well positioned to talk about the startup landscape today. And in this conversation, he does exactly that. And he shares his perspective and experience and provides numerous thoughts, tips, and bits of advice about funding, about what success looks like, about what investors are looking for, and a whole lot more. And after you listen to this conversation, I have a hunch that if you are starting a company in the outdoor industry and you are smart, you are probably going to think to yourself, I would like to go work with Owen and a number of other really impressive people like David Assad at the Ice Lab and even some members of our own Blister team at the next Moose Jaw Outdoor Accelerator. Well, applications open up for the next Outdoor Accelerator in December of 2023. And we will include a link in the show notes of this episode where you can get even more details about the current accelerator and learn more about this seriously valuable opportunity. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Owen Comerford. Here we go. Well, Owen, welcome back to the Blister Podcast. Happy to have you back and to... Uh, get your perspective on sort of this landscape of the startup world and, and the outdoor industry. Hey, thanks for having me. So it's been a minute since you and I last talked sort of along these lines. I guess I'm just curious to dive in by first getting your sense of how much interest and or activity you're seeing in the outdoor industry in terms of new companies. Yeah, there's still a lot of interest out there. And, you know, the outdoor industry, it is driven by technology in a lot of ways. And so uh, you wouldn't call them tech startups per se, but having that, that concept of, of technology meets design meets fashion meets function, it really does create a, a fertile ground for, for people with new, new, new thoughts, new ideas to, uh, to come into play. And to Zoom out just a little bit more. If we're looking at kind of the landscape of kind of startups in the outdoor industry over, say, the last four to five years, how similar or dissimilar do things look today? I, I think it's it's interesting today. Uh, what's what's different, I believe, is that the D to C model uh, as it existed five years ago is pretty tough. 
right? So you think five years ago, uh, you could you could a D two C company could start up and acquire uh, new customers relatively inexpensively via social media, uh, and that really isn't the case anymore. Um, you know, unless you get very fortunate and go viral. Um, or have just an amazing product that just takes off and goes viral from that perspective. The the cost to get on Meta, um, you know, to, to to keep plugging away on Instagram, it's really high. Um, part of that is is the the the, the, the delinkage from iOS, and so the ability to really target effectively went down. Um, but combined with that, more people just discovered social media and and really flooded uh, flooded the market, and so you had many bigger brands then taking up. Uh, that inventory, and so those smaller startups just really, really can't um, can't make a go of it as as pure D to C. So what we're seeing is 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 the need from startups to be much more hybrid to to consider like where does wholesale come into play because wholesale um, it has uh, a key component just in terms of driving volume. And you know, obviously, on a on a unit basis, these startups aren't making as much money because there's margin for the for the uh, you know for the retail partner. There's all the other little things. There's case packs and you know cooperative marketing funds and you know all all the little things that retailers ask from their from their um, wholesale suppliers. But at the end of the day, it drives volume, and you need that volume to to get to get to a scale where where you can actually start to make money. I think that is a fantastic point for you to bring up. While we're all probably anybody in media or paying any attention to social media and privacy and iOS and those updates, while that stuff has been significant, I have to confess I had not been thinking about it in terms of how it would affect direct-to-consumer brands and new brands trying to operate on that model. And that actually makes a ton of sense. And it's the same reason why why you're seeing um, a lot of maybe some of the D2C darlings of the last you know five or seven years go into wholesale uh, and also go into brick and mortar retail. I mean, you know, who would have thought like an Allbirds or a Warby Parker or a on and on name name the brand Bonobos would would be really leaning into those channels rather than just being this pure these pure play D2C players. And, and really, it's because they're just more cost effective ways to reach customers. <sighs> Man, is it really just as simple as history just is a pendulum and it always swings back or? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, when COVID came along, um, everybody thought, well, okay, this is the, just, this is the death of brick and mortar retail, right? Because everyone is, everyone who hadn't bought via e-commerce, that's, that's the only way that they're buying right now. And they're just never going to go back. Um, and so there was this, you know, sort of step function of, of e-commerce adoption really across the across every channel. Um, but really what we've seen is a lot of that has come back down. And uh, if you took a if you took a line in terms of e-commerce adoption in, in almost any industry, uh, you know, retail especially, and you drew that line and you, you just sort of skip over 20, 20 and 21, the line just keeps going in 23 and into 24. Right, we, we've, we've just kind of—it's it, a spike and, and a continuation of a long-term, a long-term curve, not not a step function. On the ski side of things, we're seeing reports that this past winter, 
at least in North America, saw the most skier visits ever. Do you have any other data? What else are you looking at to help get a sense or gauge interest in various sectors of the outdoor space? Yeah, certainly uh, activity is, is key, right? Because activity, you know, as a retailer, right, the more active people are, the more that they're out there, the more they're using gear and the more they'll need some new gear. Um, what we did see, though, is you know, during the pandemic, there were really big spikes in, in acquisition of, of gear, either from people who were newly getting into the outdoors as they wanted to break out of their, their house. Um, and so we, we saw really big spikes in, in bike, in kayak, and in ski, in ski hard goods. Um, but now, you know, we're, we're, on the, we're on the other end of the bullwhip where you know, there, there, we, we, we got into those, sections, those, uh, those elements. Everything sold out, right? People couldn't find stuff. Um, retailers were scrambling. Uh, brands were scrambling to find inventory. Uh, so when inventory, so that was, so, you know, sold everything, you know, off the shelves in 2020. 2021, then product, you know, the, the supply chain sort of caught up to a degree. But as that product came in, now you had a consumer who was scarcity buying, right? They're like, you know, they, they were waiting. Oh, oh, you got that. You have that tent back in stock. You have that bike back in stock. I, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to buy it now. I'm not going to wait for the sale. I'm buying it at full price right now. Now we get into 22. There's a little, little bit of an, uh, of an, of a, of an overhang, some of the other supply chain stuff. Now we're in 23. It's the opposite, right? The supply chain is swung back the other way. The consumer has satisfied their need in 21, 22, you know, if you if you're buying a a, a new bike a, a, or, or a you know a thousand dollar set of skis, you probably don't need another set uh, in, this year. So you know the combination of 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 that sort of supply chain bullwhip combined with you know overall um, consumers looking now more towards experience and moving away from product. I, I think you're seeing some of those impacts on the market. Can you say a bit more about that? What that means to you in your line of work? When you say consumers looking more for experiences rather than products, well, I mean it impacts actually what it impacts what we sell and what's good, what's what's selling right now. Um, I mean, even you just look at a like take a microcosm of uh, the pack packs as a category. You know, you've got um, travel packs can't keep them in stock, just totally blowing out everywhere as people get back into travel. Um, I mean, just look at the prices of airline tickets to Europe this year. Insane. Uh, on the flip side, though, you know, m- you know, multi-day excursion packs, not so great. You know, so people, w- which which had been a, a really a decent, um, decent business for us the last couple of years. So it really does vary a lot depending upon what people want to do. That said, I think the long term uh, for for camping, um, like we have a brand new um, line, a moose shell line of comfort camping, um, and we're really leaning into that because that experience is something that really did take a, a step function in terms of activity in people getting outdoors and just being with family and being out. In, you know, not not necessarily hardcore backpacking, but just hanging out at, at a state park um, and rediscovering that. And that is something that's going to continue. And, and that's, that's something that we want to, want to be there for. Mm-hmm. So that's a great example of you all identifying maybe something that we saw come up 
in terms of popularity in the last several years and you're wagering, that's going to continue. Yes, absolutely. Got any other trends like that for us uh, as you peer into your crystal ball? I don't know if it's a trend so much as a hope, but um, I, I really hope that we see or continue to see improved uh, levels of diversity in outdoor participation. Um, we are seeing some of it. I mean, you look at some of the reporting coming out of, of KOA and their annual report. Um, I believe a couple of years ago for the first time, um, the, uh, non, non-white um, campers actually made up a majority of new campers, right? So it, it's, it's still, we're still a, um, a very non-diverse activity, you know, and some, some are even less diverse than others, like skiing, for example. Um, but but I, you know, I, I feel like that there, there is some some hope. Uh, we're seeing better representation in marketing. People are, are thinking about it, uh, and they're trying to tackle tackle that. Um, and I, you know, I think that's a big unlock, not just so, from a societal perspective, um, but from a, just a, a business perspective, right? I mean, if you're only serving really one portion of the population. Uh, and uh, a population that's becoming increasingly diverse, if you're, you're, you're basically leaving out potentially half your customer base. So, so that, that's something that it's a trend. It needs to become uh, more like a, a tsunami, but, but we'll, we'll get there. Fully agree on the need. Want to be hopeful with you that we'll get there. And would just also be curious from your vantage point, whether you're seeing maybe let's just say more activity on this front, uh, uh, an eagerness to address this, direct work to address this from larger, more established companies? Or are you seeing more happening in terms of maybe smaller, newer companies? It's all of the above. So you know, I've been part of a number of conversations at an industry level with both brands and retailers about how do we address this. And uh, I think the challenge that we have right now is it's a lot of people pulling, trying to pull, do their own thing and pull in different directions. Or in some cases, brands that want to do the right thing, but are a little scared to do the right thing for being called out. Right. And I get that. You know, I mean, I, I look at Moose Jaw and I look at the makeup of, of, of our employee base it's not diverse, right? I mean, and 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 because because really our employee base is a is a function of our, of of people who love to be outdoors or who are who are active in the outdoors. Um, you know, half of the people you know, started in in the stores because they they wanted the gear discount, right? So so that's kind of that, that it's somewhat of a self fulfilling prophecy. Um, but but you know, the, the need is out there for more, uh, industry wide coordination, which is something that, um, that I'm, I'm trying to work on with it, with a number of, of my peers. Um, but there are also a lot of great grassroots organizations out there doing the work, so to speak. Um, and, I, and they're getting more, uh, I think we're seeing more activity there and I think they're getting more support. Uh, one of the things that I think needs to happen though, is that the industry needs to come again, come together to, to help, you know, raise up the activities that, that are happening and, and just be more coordinated about that because, you know, the industry can't do it. We can't do it all ourselves. Certainly one brand can't do it, do it all by itself. Even the industry just acting in as, in, as an industry isn't going to work. It's really bringing all of the constituents together, the grassroots organizations, the brands, the retailers, and then really helping everybody move forward together. 
So perhaps related, what can you tell us in terms of diversity among new companies? We started this conversation talking a bit about startups. Are we seeing good movement on that front? Uh, probably not enough, but that's the reason why we created the Outdoor Accelerator, is to, to uh, help companies from either you know, underrepresented groups, founders from underrepresented groups, uh, or companies that are trying to address some of the, the, the lack of diversity in the industry. It's not 100% of what we do in the accelerator, but it's a, it's a key component of what we look for in the candidates that we, uh, that we put forward. The, the, the way that we work the accelerator is we go out and we, we ask for candidates. Uh, we, get, we, we get upwards of 100 people that, that apply. Then uh, we have a panel uh, made up of, of myself and um, some other industry experts from the ICE Lab, um, from, uh, from Holland and Hart, um, and we, we go through and choose a top 10. And then that, that top 10 is, is voted on actually by Moostar customers. And we get anywhere from five to 10,000 votes that then decide who the, who the four companies are that are going to go into our accelerator program. Um, and what we've seen is over the years, uh, the, unfortunately, I would say not enough diversity in the candidate pool to have as much as we would like. But but we're we're getting there, right? So so we we've had some great success with uh, with female founders, and and we've had some success, but not as much in finding um, uh, founders from from uh, from BIPOC communities. <laughs> There's a lot of stripes of diversity. Diversity should be diverse, right? And sure. so I I uh, I also think all these things take time. Everything on earth takes time, right? And if you're serious about it and committed to diversity of many stripes, well, we got work to do and let's keep doing that work. And um, yeah, so I, th I think that's a very helpful thing. And I don't think it should be diminished. The idea that you're saying we're seeing more female founders coming in, that's a great thing and deserves to be celebrated. And, and there is more that can be done. Right. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I, I think success begets success in a lot of ways. And so if, if people can see people like them being successful and however they identify, um, that will then make somebody who has a great idea for a business or a product think, well, why not? Why, why don't I do this? Right. You know, I, I because yeah, okay, I, I'm not, you know, the, the, the prototypical, uh, outdoorsy person, right? Skinny white guy. Um, but, but, you know, Hey, I, I've got something to say. Like I look at, um, to in this current cohort that we have right now, we have a, a company called Wander and, uh, this is two, two women who are developing, um, uh, starting with hiking pants for, uh, for plus size women. Right. And, and, and really there are a couple of companies that, 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 that sort of, that sort of address this today, but the the pant that they've designed and the technology that that they're putting together is so targeted and thoughtful around that consumer. I think it's really going to be great, um, and and that's just a case of um, you know working with uh, working with those two founders, really starting with um, you know wh where they came from and and a very very modest. Uh, 
thoughts in terms of how many pairs of pants they could sell. And then really, you know, taking them from there and, and kind of opening up their eyes and thinking about, okay, what is the total addressable market here? And, you know, how, how, how much scale do you need to be successful? And, and really, you know, the, just the evolution of their thought process over the last, you know, four or so weeks in the accelerator has been amazing. Um, and it's, it's, it's inspiring, you know, um, a number of, of the founders will come to me and say, oh, and I can't believe that you guys do this and that you personally spend so much time with it, which, which I do. Um, but, but quite frankly, you know, it, it's because I, I actually get so much more out of it than I give, you know, just working with these folks and their passion and, you know, seeing them, um, succeed is, is incredibly uh, rewarding for me. Hmm. Hmm. Can you tell us more about some of the other companies or founders that you've been working with? Sure. So um, we've got uh, an, another group is Fernway, uh, F-E-R-N-W-E-H. Uh, and Fernway is a, um, it's a backpacking food company, uh, but they're, they're really focused on uh, sustainable sustainability and low carbon footprint. So all of their food is vegan or plant-based. Uh, it's gluten-free, comes in completely sustainable, biodegradable packaging, um, and is delicious. So, so the, and, and that's a female, uh, a female led female founder company out of Portland. And that's, you know, supports that, that, you know, that local environment. Um, but it's really, you know, putting out a, a really differentiated product and again, you know, and, and that's Ashley. So working with Ashley, it's, it's been amazing just to see, you know, how, how help her thought processes in terms of growth, in terms of costing, pricing, marketing, um, product positioning in the competitive sense. So that's been, that's been really fun. Um, so that's Ashley. And then, uh, we've got, um, near zero and uh, near zero is a, is a, it's really what I would say it's, um, that's Scott. And, and I would say near zero is about demystifying backpacking, right? Because, backpacking is you know it is it's kind of an incredibly daunting thing especially if you haven't done it before or if you don't have a friend that is you know willing to to kind of go with you and teach you the ropes that just the thought process of stepping out of your comfort zone and going out into the backcountry it's like well, what do i need and okay where do i get all this stuff and how do I even pack it? And you know, on and on and on. And so, really, what what Near Zero is doing is it's saying, "Hey, listen, it's it the the core is it's a backpack that is compartmentalized and actually labeled for all the things that you, that you need on your on your backpacking journey." Um, and uh, it, the, the, the the compartments are set up and and such that the weight distribution is perfect. So if you have the tent is here and your sleeping bag is here and etc. And then also um, has actually produced all of the key elements. So you can actually you can buy a whole bundle. Um, and I believe there's a, there's a, like a I think it's a thirty item bundle that basically has everything that you need except for food and some clothes. Uh, and it's it's like fourteen pounds. So. Um, but, but it's like, it's kind of backpacking by numbers, if you will. Uh, but again, it, it's demystifying. And so there's an inclusivity element there in terms of helping to get people outdoors. Um, and then the, the fourth is coastal range and coastal range is, um, it's a, a backpacking stove. So, uh, so John, um, was, uh, head of R and D of a major stove company. And left a number of years ago, really went out into industry, got his MBA, got into consulting, but just had this itch, 
you know, that, that said, well, it, there's there's more work to be done here in terms of, of backpacking stoves. They haven't really moved forward. Um, and so he's he's coming to market with kind of his, his new version of, of the backpacking stove. Um, yeah, so those are the four this year. We've had great successes from, from prior years as well, from some from female founders, some from, um, from, from, uh, other groups, but it's, it's, yeah, it's been great. I want to ask you this question and I feel like the answer is going to just be everything, but I'm going to still ask it anyway. Your role, when you are talking with and working with these founders and these companies, it kind of sounds to me like nothing is off the table. They, they can kind of come with questions ranging from, yeah, how do we get cost of customer acquisition down? Or how do we get cost of making goods down? Or, you know, brand strategies, marketing, it's it's sort of the entire gamut. Am I correct on that assumption? Oh, 100%. Yeah. And uh, w- one of the points that we make early in the process is, hey, we're, we're here for you, the founder. And ultimately, it's all about your success. So um, like there are, some, there are some accelerators that would say, hey, listen, if we're the Moose Accelerator, we need an exclusivity on the launch, right? That's just an expectation, right? And that doesn't meet our requirement, which says that we're here for the success of the, co- the, of, of the company. Um, if they want to go down that path, you know, they, they'll probably, we would probably be able to give them a, give them more of a, more of a push if they're, if they're a, a, an exclusive, but we would never require that. We would never limit them in that way. Good bit of info there, but I guess to continue with my question. So you, you do everything, you will address anything any question uh, that a that a founder or a company might have, but are you seeing certain things that kind of stand out as recurring? And maybe this is just t- maybe I'll just say in this moment right now, as you and I are talking, what stands out to you as being some of the key things where you're saying, ah, you know, quite regularly, companies really need to get clear about this particular element of starting a new business? Sure. Uh, it, it varies a lot from, from company to company and founder to founder. You know, some founders are very numbers oriented and they really get that part. Um, some founders, uh, you know, are, are really, they're all about the product. I would say generally speaking, right. Founders typically they get into it for the love of the product. And then, you know, there's all of the issues around, okay, now how do I sell it and how do I market it? And how do, you know, I'm, you know, and they're, they become a bit of a jack of all trades. So like the, they've got their Shopify or, you know, or their Squarespace site and they're, so they're running their website, they're running their marketing, they're fulfilling orders, you know, they're answering the phone and it's, it's just a lot. Um, and, and then potentially working with, with trying to, you know, go store to store, selling their product in, into uh, into gear shops. So um, I think part of the challenge a lot of the time is understanding, okay, what are the pieces of the puzzle that you need to do as a founder? Where are you best, you know, where, where are your, is your energy best, uh, best concentrated? Uh, and then where do you need to really kind of outsource? Look for agencies, look for help, look for other things. Um, and that's a lot of what we can help with is just, you know, finding those pieces. And then quite frankly, you know, for a lot of folks, it's okay. Uh, you know, can you get this beyond a hobby, right? Because 
it, it, it almost is never going to work where it's like, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to start up a company as my side hustle. It's like, well, no, it, it's an incredible amount of work to start up a company. Um, and especially if, if you have, if you aren't outsourcing anything and until you can get to that level where you can step away from your day job and give it a go full time, you, you're not going to get there. And so what we see is, you know, people try to bootstrap it while working and, you know, their, their main, their main job suffers or, or the, the, the startup suffers, their marriage suffers. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough go, but because they're bootstrapping, they never um, can get to the scale to where they can quit their day job. Right. And so helping people understand, and, and that's one of the questions that you know, I ask a lot of founders is, okay, what would it take? What would it take? What would the business model look like for you to, for you to be able to take enough money out on a monthly basis to support your lifestyle, right? And to make that go of this. And, you know, and then and let's back into that. Okay, what would that look like top line? What would that look, look like, you know, in terms of the units? How, so how many units you'd have to sell? How would you sell them? Can you do that through D2C? Do you have to do it with wholesale? And, and kind of take it down through the whole financial model. And, you know, a lot of folks realize, oh, wow. Uh, this thing actually needs to be $500,000, a million dollars, $2 million to really be something that, you know, and, and in some cases people decide, you know what, I'm not willing to, to do that. And, that. and that's not necessarily the wrong answer, right? But the, the, probably the really wrong answer is continuing to just sort of try to scrape by and do it for years and never really get anywhere. Right. So I hope people listened real carefully to what you just said on that front. And I think, yeah, you helping people kind of reverse engineer, like how much revenue do you, does this company actually need to be bringing in to allow you to focus on this in a full-time way? That's extremely good advice. Now that said, I'm curious about your own personal opinion on this front, you know, starting up something new as a side hustle that can work as long as like where I'm totally in agreement with you that if it it's not going to stay your side hustle or it's likely going to go away right but do you have a strong sense of conviction or just given your experience and what you've seen do you try to get someone who is interested in launching a company or maybe they did launch a company you know uh, less than 12 months ago are you trying to pretty consistently always get them to move away from this being the side hustle sort of as quickly as possible or or are you open to that being a bit of an organic thing as long as they're clear this has to move at some point what's your i guess philosophical take on that I mean, ultimately, it's it's their choice, right? Um, I would just say that, uh, in my experience, I haven't seen it be successful where it's a long-term side hustle, um, because because you know, um, one of one of the things that stands in the way is frequently though the need for some form of early uh, early funding um, that's to get them over the hump, right? Because there's that first that first big order that you're going to land to get into a retailer or that first big order that you land in order to, to, to really get the, get things rolling. Um, typically 
you know, a lot of, a lot of folks won't have the 25, 30, 50, whatever it is, thousand dollars needed to, to make that happen. Um, and so, so that, that can be, um, a catalyst too, is helping people find that initial funding to say, okay, you know, to make a go of this, right. And, and to be able to pay yourself too, not just, you know, pay a, pay a, um, a factory partner or what have you, um, you, you need to, you know, how much you need to raise? What does that look like? Right. And so, yeah, and, and yeah, it can be, it can be 50, it can be a hundred, it can be $250,000. It really depends on the kind of product and what you're doing. Um, and, and there are people out there, there, there are funding sources, there are, um, there are lots of great pitch competitions, which, um, can be especially amenable to, to, you know, it, um, uh, founders from underrepresented groups, uh, so that's uh, helpful. Uh, and then there, there are also quite a number of angel investors out there that uh, the outdoors is their passion, and so you know nothing would please them more than to actually align you know their their personal investments with their passion. So uh, it, it can come together um, if you have the right product. So let's talk a bit more about just funding and funding options. As we're having this conversation in early June of 2023, is the current investor landscape, funding landscape tougher now than it has been, still pretty good, better than it has been? How would you describe the, the current scene? Uh, I think in some ways it's tougher just because the bloom is off the rose for the whole DTC model. Um, and so the big dollars uh, that you know, some of the VCs put behind those big DTC plays hasn't really. Th- th- there, there are some there are some unicorns, but in general they haven't really panned out. Um, and as the economics of those models become trickier, I think it's it, it's tougher. Um, the other thing too is that within the outdoor space, um, it isn't like a tech startup situation where a company can go from zero to, you know, $200 million in, in, in a few years, right? Um, you know, there are a lot of brands in our industry today that are, you know, potentially household names, right? Like brands you've known forever that are doing $20 million, right? You know, and so you talk to a, to an investor um, and, uh, you know about, about making an investment in a company, and you, 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 know, you want to show your, your your financials and your and, and the, the the growth curve, and you know getting a getting an investor who's really just in it for the for the the upside, excited about a company that's going to do you know five million dollars in five years, it's just not not that not that exciting. Um, but if but again if you if you can find investors that are linking their passion with. Uh, with their investment, that's a that's a different story, and I think that that's really where you can lean in because th- there are um, a lot of you know angel investors that are out there. You, you know, it's it's a it's a um, I, I guess a, a, an outcome of the of the income inequality that exists in our in our country today. That there are a lot of high net worth individuals um, that are looking to invest and to and to help uh, help companies. So if somebody's listening to this and they either have a young company or they're thinking about starting one, what advice can you give them that might help them be attractive to the kind of passionate investor that you've sort of just described here for us? Well, I mean, the first thing is to, is to come up with, with the product, right? I mean, you have to prove it out. And there's different ways to do that. There are... Um, 
there, there are Kickstarters, there are other things. You know, I I actually like the idea of the Kickstarter model because um, it really does force a, a company to distill what really makes their product interesting, right, and makes it different. Um, now, it, there's there are challenges with the Kickstarter model too because ultimately you have to really. Yeah, I think some people go into it just thinking, oh, okay, I'll, I've got this idea, I'll, I'll come up with a video, I'll put it up on Kickstarter, bing, bang, boom, we're off to the races. And it just, it just doesn't work like that, right? I mean, I mean, first of all, the, your content has to be amazingly on point. It has to be an incredible idea. You have to have done your homework in terms of how you're going to build the different levels. And most importantly at all, you, overall, is you have to have built up a wait list of people that want that product on the day that you start your Kickstarter, right? So, um, and that's, I think, the piece that most people miss. They think, oh, I'll get it on a Kickstarter and Kickstarter will, will promote it for me. Mm, no, Kickstarter promotes, Kickstarter promotes the Kickstarters that are doing well, right? They look at the, they look at the ones that, that are really ramping, that, that, that are funded in the first four hours, that are already kind of on the upswing, and then those are the ones that get pushed to the top of the list and get pushed out to, to, to folks in that market. Um, so there's an investment that's needed just to get that wait list, right? And to build the content as you do all those things. So it, it isn't the right thing for everybody, but I think it's an interesting approach. Um, and that can, that can help to validate demand for a potential investor. Um, or the other way obviously is, is to, is to actually build the product, bring it in, have sell in and, and, and show that way. I have a hunch that you are paying more attention than I am to things like Kickstarter and the various platforms. Are those platforms as popular as ever? Maybe had their heyday a few years ago? Where, where are we in terms of how, how much use those are getting, you know, and how effective they are, that type of thing? Yeah, I mean, I, they're, they're still out there. I, I don't know that they're, are, that they're um, certainly not growing as rapidly as they were. Um, the other thing I would say is that um, there's, there are Kickstarter buyers and there are non-Kickstarter buyers. Like I, I was having a conversation with a founder today, today and they, were, they said, well, you know, it, but if you go out to Kickstarter, then, then you know, we'll, we would basically have, you know, used up all of the potential buyers for our product. And I said, well, that would be amazing. But no, because it, even, even if everybody uh, on Kickstarter, you know, loved the product, Kickstarter is only touching a, a, a small slice of the, of the available customer base, right? And, you know, it tends to be tends to be younger, tends to be a little bit more early adoptery, you know, tech oriented. Um, and that's why, and that's why also, that's why not every product is perfect for Kickstarter. I mean, you have to kind of have that certain, um, very easily understandable hook, right? Um, visible tech usually helps, um, and a clear differentiator to what's in the market today. And, you know, some, so, so if you're more of a, um, like a fashion play, like look at look at some of the brands that are that are just uh, really doing well in, in in outdoor today. Like look look at a Viore. You know, would I have said to Viore back in the day, 
you should go on Kickstarter. No, because that's a product where you've got to touch it and feel it to understand the fabrication. You've got to put it on to, to feel the fit, right? It would have come across as, oh, it's another athleisure brand. Why am I going to jump all over that for Kickstarter? So it, it's, yeah, it, 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 it very much depends on, on the product. I think that's really good advice as, as people wonder how much time or energy should we put into something like a, a Kickstarter launch? So yeah, I think really good advice there. We were talking just a little bit earlier about what constitutes or counts as um, success. And, you know, we were talking a bit about like, well, what, what do we even mean when we're talking about a, a company being successful? Thoughts on that to maybe help people frame their own thinking about this? Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately success is, uh, well, first of all, I think the first level of success is, can you pay yourself? Can you pay your own bills? Is it supporting you and your family? That's number one. Um, the other piece in success is, uh, is it sustainable, right? Um, it's one thing to come up with a product, right? Um, but realistically and in most cases a single product is not very sustainable for, as a company you have to think in terms of okay what's the next product or the next add-on or the next version of that product and so really coming up with that that like that ongoing success is key um part of that is is product part of that is understanding customer loyalty part of that is is having the same having the the right partners in place both internally within the company but also in terms of your wholesale partners or your retailer partners. Um, so because, you know, the, the thing about doing a startup is it's hard work, especially at the beginning. Right. But, you know, we're, there are some people that can keep, keep that up for years and God bless them. But, you know, for, for, for most folks, there's a time at which you say, Hey, listen, success for me is that, you know what? I, I can, take a break. I can go on vacation, right? Uh, you know, the whole company does not revolve around me being on 24 seven, right? That, that to me is a big part of success as well. So not only am I paying my bills, but I can actually, you know, take time, be with my family, go to my uh, daughter's soccer game and, uh, and, and, and exist, right? And not just exist for the company. So just getting real clear on what your particular version or vision of life looks like with respect to those elements, I think is what I hear you saying. Yeah, exactly. Um, because, because, because sometimes you, you can be a victim of your own success, right? If it, something, these things can snowball and, and you're, it's great. It, you're, you're, it's, it's, you know, it, it's uh, you're actually hanging on for dear life because it's, it's going so quickly. Um, but, you know, understanding that, you know, long-term success is also about, you know, personal growth mm -hmm. as well. This is maybe its own entire conversation, but I'll, I'll ask about what you've seen in your experience because most of the people I know, I would say, who are company founders, I can't say that I would define them as being the most um, balanced people in the world. So this is always... I've talked about this before, but I sometimes will come across, I don't know, certain posts on social media or something to, that are sort of like, remember, you know, only work 40 hours a week and always sleep nine hours a night. And it's like, 
cool, but I don't actually know like anybody who is building and at the forefront of a growing, quote unquote, successful company, however we want to define that, who I do think is, you know, meets that sort of vision for like this really balanced life. And so what I worry about is we're just sometimes maybe not being honest and and I and I don't I don't I don't know what your thoughts are on that. If it's like, well, we might not being honest, but we this is a problem. We should view it as a problem, and it's something that we should be all sort of fighting against. I don't know. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, asking for a friend. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. All right. I think that's very fair. I, um, ultimately, I, I think what it comes down to is. It's what what brings you fulfillment, right? And if what brings you fulfillment is really working on this this passion of yours, then then go for it. Um, but I, a lot of it, to me, comes down to who you, the people that you surround yourself with, right? I, I'm a big believer in the fact that you know happiness is is in people, right? It's not in things. Uh, it's not necessarily in products, and so. Um, if you've surrounded yourself with other people that share your passion, and so so people are part of your passion, uh, and if it, said differently, if you're spending eight eight hours a week on work at work, but it's with people that you really enjoy spending time with, then I think that's fine, right? And and that gives you fulfillment. Um, if you're spending eight hours a week and you're in your basement staring at a screen <laughs> yeah. the whole time, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. For me, that would I would I, I can't imagine that's very fulfilling. Similarly, you know the other people in your life, your 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 your, your partner, your your kids, your, your your whatever. You know, if they're along for the ride too, that's great. You know, um, and and you're 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 both bought into the same sort of contractor. And hey, mom or dad is you know is 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 not around quite as much, but you know that that, that that's okay, and that we've worked all of that out. Then I think that that can be fine, um, but. Uh, in that scenario, like if you if you are in a situation where, you know, you do have to work, whatever sixty hours a week to make it to make it happen, to me then you have to offset some of that with flexibility, right? Which is to say, hey, listen, yeah, I you know I, I, I have to work sixty hours a week, but but you know what, I can head out at two o'clock in the afternoon and I can go and watch my daughter's soccer game. I can go and take my son skiing, right? I can do these things, or I can. Take take a night off, take a weekend off, and and to me, a lot of that flexibility comes from the people that you surround yourself with as you go on, on this adventure, right? And finding the people that you can trust to to take the reins when when you step out of the business, um, because if it's all on you, it, it, it's it's yeah, it's it's that's that's a lonely it's a lonely and overly pressure filled existence, right? Um, I think actually one of the toughest things is where um, not only do we, you know, put all this pressure on ourselves to succeed relative to the business or or the company or whatever, but then we also put all of these expectations on ourselves in terms of a balanced life, right? Or in terms of of, of, of work life balance or whatever else. So, so, you know, not only are we working hard, but we're actually then beating ourselves up for working hard. It's like, well, that's that's not fun. So, you know. It, it's all about kind of, I guess, being realistic about it. And if it, if it makes you happy to do that, then do it as long as you're doing it, you know, with other people in mind. 
back to a bit of a crystal ball question. Just curious to get a sense of where you see this quote unquote outdoor industry going over the next, say, five to 10 years. You already noted one example, right, of more sort of casual camping, maybe car camping. And I I actually really hope you're right on that one. I, I like the idea of that being a thing that we continue to see more and more people picking up and, and doing, you know, with their families. Any other areas where you at Moose Jaw are kind of identifying, like we're, we're expecting to see growth in these sectors? So for us with Moose Jaw, where we're really leaning into is what we call the inclusive enthusiast. So trying to, our vision is to be the, the outdoor enthusiast most loved gear shop. Um, and, and the reason why we're, we're, we're talking about that is we feel that in some cases, I think um, the, the idea of the outdoors has been a little bit diluted over the years as people have you know chased profit or kind of slapped the outdoor label on anything that even smells of being outdoors, right? And for us, you know, the, our feeling is, hey, let's get people outdoors, right? <laughs> let, let, let's, let's get them people outdoors doing outdoorsy things. And that, that, that might just be taking the dog to the dark park. That's fine. But it is outdoors, right? We're actually leaving, leaving our house and we're getting out there. And so, um, you know, that is, is key and, and just being authentic about it, right? And, and not just sort of pretending that we're outdoor, that we're outdoorsy, but actually saying, no, no, we're, you know, we actually do want people to be outdoors and, and to get into nature and, and, and enjoy, enjoy that. Cause it truly is restorative, the power of the outdoors. And I think that's, if there's one lasting element aside from maybe remote work to come out of the pandemic is people starting to understand that and, and, the, and, and the restorative power of the outdoors and just being out there. And so, you know, I feel that's a trend that's going to, to continue. Car camping is part of it, but it's, it's hiking, it's biking, it's kayaking, it's all those, it's all those things. And it doesn't have to be, you know, you know, teeth gritting black diamonds and white water and all of that. It's, it, it can be snowshoeing in the park. I mean, it, it's, it's whatever gets yeah. you out there. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it's, while we have more and more forces, powerful forces in modern life, pulling us to be in front of that computer or that TV monitor, or staring at our phone, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that we just need to be vigilant across the board in every community to be like, let's get out of the house and away from staring at the screen. And I, 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 I think um, that is absolutely just not a controversial take. And it's also what I hear you saying, right? And so let's not just focus on the most extreme stuff that would be terrifying and deadly to many of us, but to just say, let's just keep pushing hard to encourage everybody and make sure our, we ourselves are getting out for the reasons you said, the restorative reasons you've said and the like. Yeah, I think getting away from the screen is a key part because let's face it, uh, you know, in, in our world, it isn't even getting away from the screen it's the screens you know i mean how many how many how many of us are sitting there 
myself included, I'm, you know, I, I'm at home. I've got my laptop open, you know, with the email on it. I've got the TV on. I'm watching Top Chef or whatever, and I've got like my phone over here doing something. I'm on Reels or whatever. It, it, it's it's it, it's it's not good, not good. Um, but getting out to you know walk the dog or uh, I like to play a little golf, on, you know, on a Friday morning. So it, it's yeah, or go camping uh, in the summer. Uh, you know, those those are the, the keys. I remember once with my kids, um, I, we, I, we had just gone on this really expensive um, Disney vacation, right? And and I had spent just gobs of time, you know, organizing this thing, and like you know, I had it scheduled out, right? And we were doing the fast pass here. We're going there. We're doing all the stuff, right? And we're we're, we're gathered around the pool uh, on the last day. Having some, having some dinner, and um, my kids were probably I don't know ten and twelve, and I asked them, "So, well, what's your favorite vacation?" And you know, probably adult would have picked up on the fact that I was like you know fishing a little bit here, um, <laughs> and they said, "Oh, camping." <laughs> camping, camping is your favorite vacation? The cheapest damn thing that we do. I'm like camping. I'm like, well, okay, why? So, well, you know all the parents are really kind of chilled and we get to just kind of run around and nobody kind of watches out for us. And we just, we, we, we're in the campsite, we run around all the sand dunes and we just have a great time. It's like, Oh, okay. <laughs> ding, ding. Hmm. Noted. Noted. Yeah. It's pretty good. Last question. Moose Jaw Outdoor Accelerator. Where are things right now? You're you're in it. You're in the thick of things. So talk about where you are and um, any other details about the accelerator you'd like to share. Yeah, so we're in week five. So um, we uh, the, the first two weeks are remote, where we really kind of get people up to speed, and then the teams move to to Gunnison, um, Gunnison, Colorado, uh, and we, we work with the the Ice Lab there. And the Ice Lab is on the campus of uh, Western Colorado University. And the Ice Lab team are just top top notch, and they, so they have a great curriculum, and they run accelerators there. But this is sort of a special Uber version that it, that includes Moose Jaw, um, and then we do sessions with the, the teams remotely. Uh, I, you know, myself, my VP of marketing, etc., for the first couple of weeks. But then we get together here in in Denver. Um, we're at the big year show, so they're exhibiting and they're learning, you know, about what a trade show looks like and how you know how to get how to get the, their exhibits. Um, we're going through their we're going through their marketing plans and really critiquing those. Um, it's, it's sort of like their first phase of marketing plans. Uh, they're meeting with the folks at Holland and Hart, who's uh, one of the one of the bigger uh, law firms here um, in the in, in the the Rocky Mountain states. They have a great. Um, great business and IP practice. So we take them through all of those sorts of thoughts about, you know, company formation, uh, patent protection, etc. Um, and then um, the next few weeks, then we'll be working on really building out their their supply chain model, their financial model, um, their go to market model, and and you know we'll, we'll sort of check in along the way. But yeah, so I think we're in week five mm -hmm. of eight right now. Yeah, it's really an impressive program. And anybody listening to this who, again, is thinking about starting a company or has started down that path, you should definitely check this out. You will get to talk to Owen and 
David Assad, uh, who is one of our colleagues and a good friend of mine and is super sharp. And, um, you know, I know a number of these companies will be coming up to Blister headquarters to meet with some of the folks on our team uh, to offer our thoughts on sort of what they're up to. And so there's just a lot of support. Owen's done a nice job of describing the challenges and the difficulties of probably starting any company. But I think what you will have heard over this conversation is um, there are a lot of resources here and a lot of people that can help on a lot of different aspects of starting a company and growing a company. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also that the participants get a lot out of each other too. Just, just, just that, that sense of, um, you know, you're all kind of in the foxhole together a little bit, but shared experiences, you know, some people have done a Kickstarter. Some people, you know, are already in production. Some people are very early stage. So that's key. But, um, no, I'm really proud of, of the program. Uh, a comment, uh, sort of toot our own horn here for a second, but a comment from one of the participants um, in week three was, um, uh, this is my fifth accelerator of various kinds. I have learned more in the first three weeks than in all of the other four accelerators combined. Hmm. So, <laughs> Pretty good. That's uh, pretty good. Yeah. Well, Owen, I'll let you get back to it, but it's always good to connect. And um, I, I value your perspective you. on this landscape. And um, you uh, you have a rather unique vantage point, I think, on, on this whole landscape. So I appreciate you sharing it with us. And uh, yeah, um, wish you well going forward. Absolutely. And if there are entrepreneurs out there, um, this is an annual program. So we'll be accepting applications again in December um, and would love to hear from you. Perfect. All right, Owen, you take care. Thanks, Jonathan. Bye. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Owen for another great conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. And again, we will include a link in the show notes of this episode to the current Moose Jaw Outdoor Accelerator, where you will learn a lot more information and... The next Accelerator applications for it open up in December of 2023, so you've got a few months to get your ducks in a row for that one, and you should apply, and I hope you're accepted, and then I hope your company becomes the next big thing in the outdoor industry. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you later this week over on all of our other Blister podcasts. We've got Off the Couch, our running podcast, dropping Tuesday. Crafted, we've got a great episode of Crafted dropping this Wednesday. Bikes and Big Ideas is up for this Thursday. And then, of course, this Friday, Gear 30, as always. We'll catch you on all of those other podcasts. And, you know, 24-7 check out blisterreview.com. Take care, everybody.